The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. And now, part two of our interview with the composer of The Queen's Gambit, Carlos Rafael Rivera. This is The Soundtrack Show. Queen's Gambit, there's also some sort of needle drop music that's in there from the 1960s and stuff. Were you aware of that when you were composing? Did you have to compose around it? I mean, how did how did all of, of that times. work? Randy Poster was the music uh, supervisor on that. And uh, you could look him up on IMDb. He's like ridiculous. And I got to speak to him after uh, one of our first previews. And we had he had some ideas or notes for me because I think there was some problems with what I was doing in, in episode one at the time. And he's like, I'd like more brass. I'd like to hear more brass. And I was like, okay, cool. Because I listen to everybody. You know, when I'm when I'm on with, especially anybody who's been doing this for way longer than I have, you know. And, but that was the extent of my interaction with him. And Randy Poster, Poster did some amazing work where as he added uh, classical pieces along with Scott and um, oh. uh, that Scott Frank, the director, chose. Um, no Cien, he, he did uh, Mascagni, he did uh, Sati, I think, and he did... Uh, God, it's a Prokofiev Shostakovich, I think, the string quartet at the end of the last episode. And then there's the thing you're talking about that really is more relevant to an audience, like thinking of a soundtrack, like pop songs. And what they chose there is unbelievable. But I, at the time, was not aware of almost any of the songs that were being chosen unless I had to write into them. So, like uh, for the Gymnopodies, uh, at some point she's playing, I had a musical cue coming into it. So I had to write music that would fall into the key organic. And the problem is, during that episode, piano's still big, and it goes into a piano piece. So the idea was to avoid redundancy, um, to make it just flow into the cue. And there was another one for, like, there was a Christmas song that plays in a plane I think, and I remember I had to um, figure that one out, and and it was just uh, the reason why is because there was a different song that was originally placed, and uh-huh. I wrote a cue that went into that song. You know, like literally, it almost felt like it organically landed into the song, but then they changed the song last minute, and I had to rewrite the cue. And it was like a twenty-second cue; it was a very short cue, but to kind of make it organic into into the piece. So that one was a frustrating one for me, but. 
I'm in awe of what they did, though, without a doubt. Yeah, there were some songs that they chose. I feel like there was one in particular that I had never really been conscious of or heard before, and I can't remember. Oh, There's one called Tut, 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 which is a French pop song. Yes, the French pop song. Thank you for jogging my memory. Yeah, that was that was so cool to hear for the first time, and I thought, oh, man, I, I should go down a rabbit hole of, of, uh, of French pop music from the 20th century or European pop music you know, from the, the 20th century. The story with that one is that they were, um, that was the one I'd heard that had nothing to do with my context because I was hoping I didn't have to write anything because that was another montage where she's kind of getting her house redone. Right. You know, really changing the house up. And and they, they go, we got a song. And when I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, this song's incredible. But then they couldn't get the rights for it. And it was like, you know, uh, July and nearing the end of have, having to turn everything over to Netflix. And they were able to get a hold of the folks that owned, you know, because I think one of the songwriters had passed away. So the estate, they couldn't get a hold of them. And they finally did. And I, that was the one song I think everybody was going, we hope, crossing their fingers, you know, hoping we get the rights to that because the song was so unique and a great find. And I don't know who's responsible. I would assume Randy poster did that along with tom kramer as a music editor you know they they show things to scott and he's like yes no but that's that one everybody was dying to have and we're lucky to have had it that's that's really cool i mean you mentioned by the way working all the way up into summer so it actually leads me to another uh part of this whole puzzle um since we're we have this opportunity to talk to you about what goes into things behind the scenes this was all being done or being finished i should say in post-production in the midst of a pandemic And I wanted to just ask you, because I think I read an article about the post-production process in general and how the sound designers were building things, building scenes out during editorial, which is rare. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but but I wanted to, and, and now that I've kind of found out that you've been doing it as we go along as well, how much did working during the, the pandemic and COVID-19 affect you Versus how much of it was done before that, since you've been working on this since 2018? Yeah, there's two answers to that. And in the sense is what the very quick answer is that it didn't affect me, my workflow at all, because I've been working remotely since the first job I've had and, you know, that I did a walk among the tombstones. I was working out of Miami and the post-production was happening happening in New York. And we started doing things where I'd send files up to New York and I'd go up there for weeks at a time but mostly was in Miami working. Then mm. by the time we did Godless in you know, 16 or 17, actually, when I was full post, I stayed more here and flew less to New York then. And for this one, we were supposed to, you know, I was supposed to go up for previews uh, for a couple of meetings that would be, you know, but by the time we were all the same team, so we all know each other. And then the pandemic hit. So that basically canceled everything out. But it wasn't novel for me as it was, let's say, for Michelle Tesoro, who's the editor, who is used to working in a studio like Light Iron in New York City, where she was based on, which is the same studio that we were doing posts for Godless. And I remember she kind of had to go to her, uh, like, take her gear and her rig to work out of a room, out of, you know, the where she was staying. And I remember her saying, Carlos, I feel like I'm back in college again. <laughs> you know you know cutting on a computer and you know and 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 so i think there was a lot of folks in post that had to adapt way more than i did you Mm -hmm. know and so that was that was one of the one of the advantages of the experience i've had that i've been working remotely for all these years in that aspect so what was the other part of the question because i part of the question was since you've been working on it for a while 
it seems to me that this is not a completely synth-based, sample-based score, that you actually oh. have some gorgeous recordings in right. the score, unless my ears are deceiving me. So I'm wondering when those score oh. dates took place, where they were recorded. So, right. Good. Thanks for reminding me, because I did want to ask, answer or address the statement you made about how hearing about sound. So the, the, the person I've been very blessed to work with, his name is Wiley Stateman. And again, another, you can look him up on IMDb. He's like a legend in my mind. He's worked on sound for all the Quentin Tarantino films. Um, and going back to, I mean, I mean, he's done, I think she's having a baby is like one of among his first sort of things, but he's worked on may, many John JFK, mm-hmm. um, you know, many, many John Williams scores and many, you know, doing sound for movies like of that level for a very long time. And he's been nominated countless times for Oscars, and and I don't know what awards he's received or not. But the point is that we call him Obi Wan Kenobi, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not kidding. Like, and and the fact is, he has been a very integral part in the process because he really brought about the idea of a rolling mix. Uh, uh instead of um putting fake or temporary sound design to kind of get the story going, and then once the cuts closer to tightened. You know, fit, you know, really putting in the real sounds. He likes the idea, and he proposed this back in Godless. And we we ended up treating these seven episodes for the Queen's Gambit, and of course for Godless as a movie. Like it really started with Scott Frank, the director. He never saw it as an episodic television. He thought he saw thought of it as an arc, as a story. It's just you get to tell a seven hour movie that's cut up. Mm-hmm. So so Wiley statement really proposed the idea of even me bringing the music up to speed so it would sound presentable, getting it to about 70 or 80% there. And so we really had a real sense of what was going on as opposed to, ah, just trust me, it'll get better when we do it for real. That got conversation got thrown out day one. And so it was a really cool experience because it, I guess I would say out of all the music I wrote uh, pre-final uh, assembly or pre-final cuts, um, I was in, um, 30% of it survived. So I wrote a lot of music that didn't get used. Wow. And pre-pandemic, to now bring it back to the actual question, was like pre-pandemic, I was having musicians come to my house and play cello. And, or I had uh, Shea Cole, who's a great cellist, come, and o- come over and play. And that, you know, he, he worked, uh, some of his playing made it all the way to the end of the show and for the demos I was writing and the same thing happened with Chauvin Cronin who's a fantastic violinist. I had her come to the house and, and record. And then I used uh, joy Adams who's in Boulder, Colorado, but she played all over godless. And I used her for one, for one specific scene, which was uh, when uh, Beth goes downstairs to the basement and sees Shib- um, Mr. Scheibel's pictures. She has this big moment, a cathartic moment. Spoiler alert, or whatever, and <laughs> um, and <laughs> I don't know. I just realized, but but she um, Joy played on that, and most of her playing made it to the end. So there was a bit thin layer of real musicians, and the pandemic hits, and we start realizing that we may not be able to record an orchestra, and so what we had to do was not get to seventy or eighty percent, but to get with these uh, mixes. 95%, like as close as we could, expecting that we would have to stay, as they call it, in the box, meaning all within the computer, yeah. no real instruments. And 
with a miracle that we had was that the orchestra that we'd hired was recording early July, I think it was, and Budapest, uh, the Budapest Art Orchestra, ah. and Miklos Lukas was the contractor, and um, they actually had just lifted the restrictions mm -hmm. the day before we started recording. So we were very blessed, very lucky to get to record with them because I think that without them, this, the, the, the cues, and I could send you one so you could hear it, you know, like the main title uh, before the, the orchestra and then the main title after the orchestra. And oh, there it'd be is great about, to hear that. Say, yeah, because the main title is yeah, like, those, those attacks, those strings on the main title. I'm like, those have to be real. That can't be, that can't be just right, samples. But then, yeah. But they have Chauvin Cronin and they have Shea Cole that still carried over from the very beginning. Wow. You know, some of those, because that was one of the first cues I wrote. So I have a little bit of the real players mixed in, then there's the artificial part, yeah. and then um, then the orchestra did. But it, the orchestra, the real orchestra, the live sound does add, so far I haven't been able to top it, it, it added a 20% sheen or depth that wasn't there in the in the approved demos, if you will. Mm -hmm. and. And that step, as, as it may sound like a small number, really does make all the difference. Yeah. I, I do feel like when you hear the live orchestra, there, there is something about a group playing tootie, like everyone playing in a room that it's kind of hard to replicate with samples, but the technology has gotten closer and closer and closer. So it has, you know. I mean, there've been some incredible sample based scores, but like you say, there's like a human element that that kicks in that you you didn't know it was missing until you hear it, you know. Like agreed, uh, all this stuff sounds so good, and some people are just ridiculously amazing at at do you know uh, present company including it at making sample based scores sound you know like they're the real thing. It's actually incredible yeah. where the where the technology's gone. But man, sometimes you get people in a room and they start pushing the air and. Yeah, the magic yes. the magic happens. That's the score sounds really great. You know, I was listening to it before we before the interview and it's I was really curious to see how you did it. And it was during the summer when the restrictions were lifted in in various parts of uh Europe and and other places. Exactly. That's great. That's great. We were lucky. Yeah. Very lucky. Yeah, talk about great timing. And the show debuted in October, so that still gave you a little time to to put it all together. Mm -hmm. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. I wanted to ask you too, just about some of the melodic content. You know, you mentioned the the piano, and one of the themes that seems to emerge early on in the show is this sort of, and I think I wrote this to you at the time, um, this kind of modal Dorian uh, lift that happens when um, when Beth first discovers chess. That kind of carries through the entire, at least the, from the beginning to the middle of the of the show. Um, how did you kind of decide on the harmonic language or the 
the sort of, um, I guess, tonal balance of, of, of the show, you know, if, especially if there wasn't a temp score. You know, I, I hear like sort of Thomas Newman in there. I hear, you know, um, a lot of those a lot of those scores that he did, that kind of tonality. Um, what was, mm. is it just kind of an instinct that you reached for? Um, how did that all come about? I think it's a, ultimately always going to be a regurgitation of like all these things that I love. You know, like all of this music that I've, like you mentioned, Newman, I think there was some sense of desplot and some point to it for some reason. And there's not a single cue that it sounds like. But I can think of specifically a particular cue in Beth's first day at school. I think that's the name of the cue. And there's a movie called The Imitation Game that has a really interesting score. Oh, I love that movie. Uh, by Desplat, which I love. And and I know that I was trying to go for something that felt pointillistic. And it's a weird answer to give because it's like, but had to have a little more movement activity as she's kind of the, the, the nerves in your stomach as... I moved a lot as a kid and I had to go. My first day of school was always like in January 20th of the second semester of, you know, and I had to, everybody's had already made their friends. And I was like, hey, look, came from Costa Rica. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was like, that happened to me like three or four times. So I was very aware of that feeling. And so I, I, I wanted to capture it. answer again more as, as effectively as I can you know there was the thing I thought is that Beth's story was like a fable like I thought of her like if the idea I always thought of like opening a book like the old Disney movies like the book opens uh-huh. and and then we kind of pan in or push in on the camera and I always thought that that musically Beth's story Once it starts, which is like first music when she's looking up at Borgoff in that first uh, game. I'm sorry. We flash forward at the story and then we kind of go back. Yeah. But that transition was all like fable and fairy tale. Like it, it felt like, and so the music had to be almost whimsical, but not cheesy. You know, like it had yeah. to have a darkness. So it has some chromaticism in it a little bit right at the beginning. Yeah. And. It, 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 I just once I felt that, and once I found that, and um, Scott Scott agreed. Like he was like, this this feels this this feels right. What are we supposed to do with her? Sending someone? It's hardly a scratch on it. It's a goddamn miracle. I doubt she'll see it that way. That's, you know, the direction started kind of moving and propelling itself forward. Um, but like I said earlier, the idea I think is, is that of her melodic idea was was not really so much like a theme for Beth, because that was like sort of the story, but the character had different themes. And I had to kind of write music for her addiction, because she's such a complex character. Yeah. You know, she's not just one dimensional, so it's not like she appears and there's a theme. It's most likely like her, you know, game theme or uh, music or addiction music. 
the pills have a sort of really dark uh, variant of the fable music. Um, it, it was kind of like these or victory music when she wins. And I realized I, or if Beth was up to something, I remember I, I came up with something like that was like, dum, 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 boom, right? This little yeah. octave little thing. Yeah. And then, and that anytime she's up to something, the mischief, you hear that you, you hear, yeah, <laughs> mischief. Thank you. And, and that's sort of like, like when she's stealing the tools, you hear that music. Even when she beats the last move she does to play Borgoff, it ends with that. She yeah. came up with something. She's up to something. Did she get away with it? It's your game. Take it. And or if she's going to do something wrong or, or something that maybe she shouldn't do or uh, something edgier. And those were all the things that added up. But again, these were all things that I discovered as I was going along and really pressured to find you know, write my way out of the orphanage, if you will. Wow. That's a great way of putting it. And actually, I think of another great moment in the orphanage. It's a sound design moment. And it occurs to me while you're talking that since you had a lot of sequences or a lot of sequences were kind of uh, designed out early, you as a composer right. were not working in parallel with, you know, sound designers building out hyper reality in certain scenes. Like the scene where Beth first takes the pill and she's completely drugged out and there's this wonderful <laughs> sound montage that happens and she can hear, she, you know, she doesn't know Shabble yet, but she can hear his keys on his keychain and the mop on the floor. And like that whole mm. sequence, were you able to write, having heard that stuff, were you able to, to no. either compliment it or stay out of the way? No. So you still hadn't heard any of those sequences when they were being put together. But we're talking about sequences that are very early on. Later on, more of the sound was built as I was writing and I found my way into sound. But that ah. one, the specific one you're talking about is interesting because I wrote an entire musical sequence for her being on high on the pills for the first time. And it was music that was originally driving that entire sequence. Oh. And the problem is that it became creepy. I couldn't find my way out of him not being a creep. Mm -hmm. um, and the music was like really not well taken by Scott. He was like, Some, it's just something off. It feels like we're in a horror movie when we shouldn't be in a horror movie. And that's why the tone was so hard to find for this one. Yeah. Because, first of all, it's about chess. Um, you know, different aspects of a character. You have to find empathy for a character that is ultimately unlikable just if you think about beth Beth's personality she like i said she's a product of all these choices that were made for her but she's not a very nice person if you will if you really think about it mm -hmm. like what you know how she treats guys how she's because she never learned how to love mm -hmm. you know she's given a doll in episode one and she throws it away Mm -hmm. And she has no idea of how to transfer or understand how to give that. And people who taught her that were Jolene, Mr. Scheibel, you know, her mom, Alma, ultimately, mm -hmm. that starts as a as a relationship of, you know, of mutual usage, but then grows and she becomes likable. So music had to play more of that role in supporting her likability yeah. versus versus the uh, the other aspect. And, and anytime it leaned into 
especially the addiction stuff, it was very dangerous to make it horror like. And and those were big mistakes I was making early on, you know. And so I think Wiley stepped in and said, "Let the professionals do it, Carlos." <laughs> <laughs> That's th- thank you? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm I, no, no. I'm kidding around, but but it's true. But honestly, I was grateful because sometimes you know there there are certain scenes you can't find your way out of, and that one that one Wiley got me out of it. Greens to even your disposition. Orange and browns for building a strong body. Take them both. And Scott really ultimately realized that sound. And I'm so glad that you noticed it because it really was a, a lot of work to get that scene working mm-hmm. to work. And I love the keys reference I, because I think of E.T. I, I have my oh, issues, right? going back and, you know, the guy, the bad guy always had keys in E.T. You know, it's one of the markers of him. Yeah. And then um, and so here we have Mr. Scheibel. You know, there's something interesting about the keys, but it doesn't feel creepy. It feels like it's supposed to feel which is awesome, you know, an awesome job by them. Yeah, the you, you bring up an interesting point about either, in, you know, either making scenes lighter or darker or playing against what's on screen. Um, right. You know, you it seems like the job that they steered you toward was playing against, you know, making sure that Beth is sympathetic through all of her hardships, you know, that you're not making yes. it creepy when she's on drugs. You're, or the same with Mr. Scheibel, you know, and I think that's what I was picking up on too when I talked about your that, that theme that you introduced when she first starts learning how to play chess. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting too, in terms of balancing tone was this whole yeah. 20th century KGB cold war Russian element to this story that yeah. this story seemed to handle really beautifully, especially at the end when she says, I forget the word she says, she says, let's play, but you know, she, yeah, she, yeah, she Graham. Yeah. She says, she Graham. She, and she goes, let's play. And she's fully kind of embraced, you know, the game and the tournament and the culture. And there wasn't this sort of, you know, as a child of the eighties, kind of xenophobic cold war hunt for Basil Peladoras, you know, uh, Shostakovich, whatever <laughs> it is, you know, there wasn't that yeah. kind of Russian nationalist treatment. It was warm. It was, and it was exciting. Did you have conversations about how to treat Moscow, how to treat Russia, how to treat the Cold War? Where did, how did those land where they landed? Well, I think even in the novel itself, I don't think Borgoff is ever portrayed uh, as a bad guy. I mean, it's easy to think of him. He was ultimately her, to a certain degree, her antagonist. The truth is that Beth was her own antagonist. You know, mm-hmm. she she's the one who, who got herself in the problems she did. Her addiction got in the way. She self-sabotaged. You know, she she had to save herself from herself. And ultimately, her friends had to do that for her. And um, I think the idea and character was one of the powerful lines, I think, that, uh, what's his name, Benny Watts says to her, you know, is that the Russians work as a team. They work together. They collaborate. We are so individualistic. We don't do that here. And it's we're on our own. And ultimately, what ends up helping her win is the fact that she ends up working with, as a team with these people, right? Yeah. And um, and uh, Borgoff is a is a character who 
and, and even the previous game, Luchenko, you know, when she beats this old, the white-haired guy yep. that's like very funny hair, very cool, um, who, by the way, I think was a producer on the show. They, they, oh, wow. so, and he actually wasn't just as funny. It's like a perfect casting though. And, um, there, there is reverence for the game above the idea of, uh, the cold war fear. There is sort of reverence for the fact that we're all in this together to play and I'm going to annihilate you in the game. But if you're a great player, I'll respect that much at least, you know, and, and I think that came through, I think, in the story itself. I don't think I had to do much of the heavy lifting there because had I written music that made Borogov seem like dum-dum-dum, you know, I think his, his motif is this um, ascending and descending sort of diminished thirds, you know, like minor thirds. Um, and bomb, 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 bomb. That's his motif. Every time you see him, you'll hear that. And and But it's never aggressive. It's always you know, hopefully tasteful. It's it's subtle. It's not because I don't think he deserved more than that. He never was supposed to be the bad guy. She was her own bad guy. That's what was great about it. It was that it was so refreshing to not get the mm. sort of, you know, us versus them. And instead, you know, the script was flipped. Yeah, it's a big deal. Beating the Soviets at the wrong game. Could you stop the car, please? You're going to miss the flight. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. This is, I think, again, why I I originally reached out. My heart was pounding at the end when Beth was playing Borgoff. And it's it's a game of two people sitting playing chess... And even if you don't know chess, and the, the show didn't necessarily make you follow the games move for move. It used so many other right. tricks, including the music. Was that something that came to you early on, or did you guys arrive at that? Sort of the the exciting moving strings and things like that? Because I, I was just amazed at how you all pulled that together. I, I think I love the fact that you're saying you all pulled that, because I by the time I got that, and that was kind of chronological, that was among the last scenes I scored, I had been writing all these little you know, motifs for Borgoff, motifs for when she beats Beltic. And I knew I was going to do that when she beat Borgoff. It's the same music, da, 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 dee, da, 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 right? And then, yeah. um, and I was just going to make that bigger. But the games itself, the final game with Borgoff, uh, when I got that sequence of her looking up at the ceiling, you know, that final time without the pills, right? Um, I was, I cried. Like, I was so moved when I saw it and I hadn't written anything. And what was amazing for me was to get the opportunity to write music for it. When I saw it, I knew how powerful that was then. And I was like, if anybody in my, in my thinking, I had no idea that 
as many people would see it as they have or it, it would become what it's become or sort of I was hoping the chess community would get to the end because that's my purview you know <laughs> as I'm working on it is that if they get to the end they're gonna I think they're gonna be pleased because this is like it felt like a superhero movie. I, I started feeling like, oh my God, this feels like Rocky. Mm-hmm. I had not put two and two together that it was ultimately a sports movie. It's a coming of age story. It's, there's so many things, but at the same time, that in that moment, it's a sports story. And I felt like, oh my God, I'm I'm getting to write music for this kind of, like it hit me then. So I was moved to tears before I started working. And, and that one, that whole sequence took about a week to do. Wow. And it was, and it, and it was, but it came very fast because I realized it was all of these elements that had been laid up. And that's what I mean about like, you're figuring it out as you go. I realized then that, oh my God, I could put this here. I can make this happen here. I can do this. I can bring back the main title will play now. And I have it playing once. Once she says no to him and he says draw and she says no, you hear the main title. Finally. Draw. Bogoff never offers draws, but he's offering Elizabeth Harmon one. Finally being played as it's been the, the motif da, 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 but now you're hearing it as it's going to be at the end of the show mm-hmm. so but these were things that I realized once I got him. But like like to finish off the thought is that Michelle Tesoro's editing, the cinematography of Steven Meisler, Scott Frank's direction, the sound design. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, once she looks up at the ceiling and she makes the move after she's looked up and is a very powerful moment, you know, there's an impossible thwip, you know, that happens in the chess being piece being moved. That's the beauty of what Wiley does. Mm-hmm. You know, he he does that in all the Tarantino films, like this hyper realistic sound. And it elevates it, and you're not aware that you're hearing impossible sounds for chess pieces, but that's what he does great, you know. And yeah. so I was, I was just blessed to be, you know, go along for the ride is what it truly feels like for me. I want to end it there, but I, I just I'm thinking about that scene where you know she's sitting there with Borgoff, everyone's watching, and the stuff that they shot was just so impressive. There's a shot where the the camera circles around the two players, and it's yes. I think it starts behind Beth's head. And you're looking yes. at Borgoff and she makes a move. He makes a move. And there's something about a look that she gives right as the camera clears the back of Borgoff's head or something like that. I'm just like, this is the most in- intricately choreographed shot. You know, like it was filled <laughs> yeah. with those kind of shots. And then it was filled with those kind of perspective shots that are hyper real. Like you mentioned the the chess piece, you know, and, and, yeah. and it was, it was, it was, the whole thing was framed and shot like, you know, the end of uh, Rocky or something. It really is yeah. a sports movie. And that's actually a revelation to hear me, to hear you say that. Um, that's a revelation to me, you know, because you're absolutely right. Thinking about the way it was so carefully and intricately choreographed and what a beautiful story. And I just want to say thank you so much for the music and thank you so much for being so generous with your time. 
Um, I now have to oh, go man. back and watch this whole thing again after talking to you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, no, really appreciate it. Let's go. I appreciate the time. I was going to say one last thing because you mentioned uh, how she looked. I think the gift of Anya Taylor-Joy and her performance in this um, is that is that she knows where the camera is at all times. She knows it, that's one of the gifts she has, like outside of like whatever she's learned through the craft. She happens to understand where her place in the room, in the scene, in the camera, and that that thing you noticed is something that happened more than once. And yeah. I noticed, I think it's it's kind of unique to to how she understands. She's really fantastic. She she's a movement, and and I hope she has a very long and storied career because I I, I was blown away watching the dailies, and what a professional. Well, and, I hope the and, same uh, for you as well, and I'm I have no doubt yeah. that'll be the case. Um, Let's hope, man. But thank yeah. you so much for for having me and and for yeah. taking so much time as well. It's been a thrill for me to be part of this. I, I love the other episodes I've been listening through, and and so I'm I'm very grateful to be a part of this. Thank you so much, oh, man. Thank you. Yeah, and just really quickly, where can people find you? Okay, I think I, on Twitter I'm at composer three one three. I think it's just the same for Instagram. I think it's the same for LinkedIn. And I mean, what on Facebook and. Um, uh, I'm just carlosrafaelrivera.com, I guess. Great. I feel so weird self-promoting right now, but thank you. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like I owe you, I feel like I owe that to you. And uh, if you don't oh, want to do it, I'll do it for you at the end there. But Carlos, thank you again <laughs> no, no, so I'm much. Happy. I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>